Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Future Chat from Unwind Media. My name is Rob Attrell, and I'm joined, as I am every week, by my co-host Mike Attrell. Every single week, we get together to bring you all the latest and greatest science and tech news. Nick Maddox, as he is every week, is here with his beautiful mane of long, luscious hair. Nick, how are you doing? I'm always so happy. You just you just sit, you compliment my appearance, and then I'm like, oh, Rob. <laughs> I love future chat. That is <laughs> little known fact, that is actually the reason I do this show. <laughs> <sighs> Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Yes, yeah, it's nice and warm. It feels like spring here and it's middle of January. Can't can't complain too much. Oh man, I'm getting spoiled by this El Nino year. Whoa. You like, mean global warming. <laughs> no, this is definitely an El Nino year. Um Yeah, it's there's no snow around. It's been like it's been between zero and ten all week. Yeah. It's Wait, just I forgot for a second I forgot you were actually here. I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm like, oh yeah. What do you mean, Nick? You're in London. <laughs> crazy nick well i'm glad you guys are both here virtually if not physically uh we have a big week this week and i i know i think i say that every week but uh this week especially i'm coming to you live from the latest beta of windows 10 which i'm just so excited (gasps) about and i i think i'm most excited by the fact that it worked (laughs) (laughs) uh I like I, I it's running Chrome just fine. I have a bunch of windows open. I have Hangouts running. I have I was screen sharing just recently. It uh, it all works and it's really stable. I got Cortana going. I can do voice commands. I can do uh, To be honest, it's actually pretty similar to Windows 7. It's pretty similar to Windows 8, but there's quite a bit there's I, I would say there's almost more changes than I thought there was going to be. Hmm. Uh, they changed the look of it, and for the most part, I think it's for the better. Just little visual tweaks to make things uh, more custom and to make things a little bit more obvious. Um, so did you guys, I, I don't think either of you watched the event live like I did, but um, was there any sort of standout moments from either of well, you hearing about it later? Just, just before we get into that, um, Mike and I do have things to do during the day. Um, and when we're doing those things, it's generally frowned upon for us to be watching a live event somewhere else. So, uh, so no, we did, we didn't get to watch the live stream, unfortunately. To be fair, I only watched about 20 minutes of it live. The rest of it. 20 minutes? It was a two hour event. To, I, to be fair, we work during work hours. To be fair, it started at noon. <laughs> Not noon our time. I know. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not suggesting you should have watched. Yeah, so I'm just sitting it. there I also... in class, 10 a.m. Like, excuse <laughs> me. Um, I was hoping we could all watch the Windows event instead of learning. <laughs> if I wasn't you, that is learning. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think it has a whole lot to do with visual inspection. That's true. Um, although we'll we'll get to that a bit later. That you could argue that in the future it will. Okay. Um, Ooh, so nice. I went back and I like watched that. it. I went back and watched the first half of the event after 
later that evening. And so I am still up to speed without having to spend my entire workday watching a Microsoft event. That's great. <laughs> and that's why you're here to explain it to us. That's true. So as, as people who didn't necessarily focus on the event and weren't incredibly excited by the, the fact that it was happening, w- were there any standout stories from the event that you guys thought stood out in the news yeah. afterwards? No. Pretty much just the HoloLens. That's the only. That's the only one. Yeah. Because I thought, like, we'll talk about the HoloLens because I think it's fantastic. Uh, having seen the live demo, but Windows 10 is going to be free, a free upgrade oh, for oh, Windows yeah, 7 and about up. that part too, yeah. Oh, yeah, that is That's, exciting. It brings it up to speed with the other major worldwide operating systems like <laughs> Linux, which has always been free, and Mac OS, which went free, what, two years ago now? So really, overall, I couldn't be more excited about uh, the fact that my favorite operating system, my operating system of choice, is now keeping up. Uh, I mean, the last time I paid for Windows 8... I guess I paid for the upgrade to Windows 8, but it was only 40 bucks because I got it in the first couple months it was out. But, uh, yeah, I, I really, I've always liked Windows. I, it's not that I don't like Mac OS, but uh, the, fact that, the fact that Windows, at least it, the way it seems now, is going to be first to market with a, a mass computer OS that has a voice assistant built in. The Mac OS still doesn't have Siri, and now... Uh, Windows is supposed to be coming out, I think, March or April is the final build. and I believe Chrome OS Cortana. might have Google now. I could be misremembering that. Yeah, I mean, that is a major OS. You could start splitting hairs and say that iOS on a tablet is pretty similar no, to that, if not more. It's not the same. Chrome OS is a web browser. By that logic... Chrome runs on Windows. You could say that Windows has it because Chrome has it. What? I don't, it's like Chromebooks. Chromebooks slide. run on its own operating system. Yeah. No, I know. I know they do. I know. Then no. why are you? Why would you, <laughs> Rob? Why? What? Although while I'm talking, I am really excited about Windows 10 because I still have a Windows 8.1 partition on this computer, and I just cannot stand the resource management on that machine <laughs> or on that partition so if windows 10 has better performance specs i might just ditch ubuntu temporarily but never forever Ooh. so what are these resource management issues you've been having i don't know man the moment i get like okay first i'll talk about like my quote-unquote workflow when i'm reading for pleasure it involves like opening just a ton of tabs and then working my way through them And man, once I get over about 10 tabs in Chrome, Windows 8.1 for me just started really bogging down. And I'm Mm -hmm. looking at my 8 gigs of RAM and my (laughs) Intel Core i7 and going, oh, and and the the discrete graphics card and going, (laughs) what on earth are you using 80% of my CPU for? Why? How is this excusable? Like that kind of stuff. Wow. Have you gone into the, they had that stats for nerds section in Chrome. Have you ever gone and looked? Uh, isn't that like shift escape or something like that? <clears throat> I don't know. It's in the settings screen somewhere. Um, I've used it a couple of times. I've definitely used, to diagnose what tabs are using what. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I've used that all the time. Interesting. And there's no pattern? It just seems uh, like Chrome uses a lot. There's no... I think Facebook and Plus tend to be just horrendous resource hogs, but... Yeah, now that they started running pretty much constantly, giving updates, it's uh, yeah, it's a little messy. But yeah, like I just, I can do the same browsing in Ubuntu, and my CPU is not going nuts, and it's, it's nice. Right. I mean, from my perspective, right now, it's running great on Windows 10, even without. I mean, but how Chrome, much better no could be it optimized. be? How much better could it be going with Ubuntu on it? Or sorry, you're on probably 10. at least Never ten mind. times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm quoting uh, Linus Torvald here, I believe, but uh, like Linux is so fast, it can go through an infinite loop in like ten seconds. <laughs> That's a good one. It is. So, what are your guys' thoughts on the upgrades being free? Because people. I think Windows likes, to, or Microsoft, for that matter, likes to think that people haven't been adopting the new systems because they cost money. So they, they feel that this will help that adoption rate. Um, now, my experience in talking to people and reading articles and stuff is that people just don't want to leave what's familiar, specifically Windows users, I believe. Um, well, especially the previous generation, like our our previous generation. Boomers, um, even boomers to the one in between boomers and the other one. Oh, generation Gen X. X. Yeah, that's not Gen X. No, the one prior that's to the boomers. Gen not we're Gen Y. The one Gen before y the, is the one in between. No, the one before the boomers, but after the one actually before the boomers. Before the boomers. Before the boomers. Like the people who are like the greatest generation. Like people who are like okay. 65 right now, not oh, the 50 year olds. Okay. okay. My my dad's a boomer and he just turned 65. Well, so. He was a late boomer. <laughs> oh, good one. <laughs> um anyway, I find that they like if they come up come across like they're used to using Excel and then the new version of Excel comes out, it's like, whoa, I don't know what's going on here. Like all the functions are the exact same, just the interface is a little bit different. Their menus have been moved around, but it's very frustrating to kind of go from what you're used to to a new thing. So, and that's, you know, you see all the videos of people trying to use Windows 8 with the the Metro UI and they're like, oh, what's this? And whatever. So it's like, oh, you know, it's not familiar. It doesn't work. So do you feel that now that it's free, that people are more likely to actually start using the new one? Or do you think they'll try to stick with what they're used to? I did a fair bit of reading on that topic um, because Windows 7, like 7 and later, uh, and even Vista, those were good years for the Ubuntu operating system because a lot of businesses looked at what it was going to cost to upgrade to Vista 7, etc. And like what Microsoft was telling people was that the UI is so different that when you install it, you're going to need to train your employees how to use it again. So that was that was part of that was just a huge deterrent to businesses because they were saying, "Oh, so I have to give up like 
two, three man hours for all of my employees to learn this thing and lose all that money and pay for it. Like that's, it was too big an investment for a lot of people. And that was when, um, I think you saw a lot of European government organizations moving over to Ubuntu because they thought, well, if we have to train our employees on a different operating system, why not make it a cheaper operating system? Um, and another factor is there's a general mantra in professional computing anyway, that once you get something to work, you never change anything ever again. <laughs> like I think, I think the one computing cluster I was working on was like Fedora core three or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, they have left it as is because it works and that's all they're asking of it. So, I mean, and there's also a bunch of purpose-built software for whatever people are doing that they started developing around the era, in the era of XP. And they just, if they change the operating system, it's probably going to, they will effectively brick themselves because it's not usable anymore for the purpose-built software they need. Anyway, I think that's my two cents. Like it's just, it was going to be a lot of investment and a lot of purpose-built software is a problem. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. From my perspective, the Windows 10 has taken a bunch of steps to reduce both the friction of upgrading because it's free and the friction of getting used to the new system because it, it looks a lot more like Windows 7. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. The newest build of Windows 10 has an option where I can click the start menu, which normally would have taken you to a full screen thing with all your apps, which I thought it <clears throat> it worked completely fine for me. I liked it a little bit better than I liked Windows 7's way of doing the start menu. And so now if you hit it, there's a button up at the top that just lets you switch between it with you, whether you want it to look like the normal start menu in Windows 7 or if you want it to look like the Windows 8 start menu. Oh, sweet. That just seems like the best of both worlds. And, and it can let people transition smoothly and discover that feature. Um, but in terms of the upgrade, there's kind of a question I have. And I'm sort of wondering if the consumer version of Windows 10 is going to be free, but maybe the enterprise version is going to have a bit of cost associated with it or if you'll have to sign some kind of agreement to license it because the windows 10 upgrade is free for the first year that the operating system is out. Hmm. I don't, that's just for right now. I don't know if that's actually going to be permanent, but they specifically said for the first year, the upgrade is free. So a trying to push people to a windows 10 quickly in the first year to get it for free, which I really like that idea, that decision, because you can always, after six or after a year and a day, you can just say, all right, we're going to make it free for another two months. You can just keep extending it, but it gives people a little bit of urgency to go, Oh, well, if I wanted to get it for free, I have to do it now. And it also encourages people who like, and this is where the question of enterprise comes up. It encourages enterprises or in my case at work governments to take to move up to windows 10. So windows their, their workload can spend less time working on bug fixes for Windows 7 and Windows 8 mm. and Windows 8.1, and they can just focus. The, the whole point is to get everyone on Windows to the latest version. They, they, they went into great detail talking in the keynote 
about how they want they were wanting it to work more like an auto updating system like chrome for instance is one where you don't have to worry about the latest version because it updates itself automatically in the background and when you close the the browser it'll update itself it'll finish updating itself when you open it back up again it'll you'll just be on the new version you won't even like it's completely invisible to you and so that's the biggest thing that I think they're trying to push with this is getting everyone to the latest version because it's not worth the cost to them of maintaining three or four, even five different versions, patching bugs and all this stuff and pushing out updates to different systems when you can just have spend a bit more money and not get as much money in return to to build in this automatic upgrade system. It might also and be a more sustainable push- business model to just, you know, charge licensing fees, but make the upgrades free. Yeah. And and they've also been talking about like now they have office 365, which bundles the office apps and a bunch of OneDrive storage into your, so like they're making money that way. Whereas before people either got word for free or very cheap through school or they got it, they have it at work, but nobody's no person at home or very few people at home are going to go in and spend $100, $200 every three years to get Office. They're going to stick with Office 2003 that they had. So again, getting people onto this subscription model where things are free or very cheap per month gets gets you ahead overall for Microsoft. And so I think that's why they're doing this. Yeah. It seems to me that it also allows them to kind of game their their, uh, investors report in their numbers of, you know, adoption rate and how quickly it happened and all that kind of stuff, because, um, they're very criticized for, you know, windows eight, not being successful and Vista not being successful. And these all stand out as, you know, attempts to come up with something new that wasn't accepted by their new potential new and even existing user base. Um, but this with windows 10 being, uh, you know, a compromise for windows seven that people are already on and the new stuff, um, that Windows 8 kind of tried to do, and then also being free and also only being free for a year, it kind of hits all those points that they were criticized for in the past. And I don't know, I guess it's smart, but it's also semi-artificial because they're kind of setting themselves up for success in that way, like almost artificially. I don't know. That's just my take on it. It's also a little funny because... There is a legitimate pattern in which every other uh, Windows version released or every other thing that Windows released is just garbage or at least commonly perceived as garbage. And the trend continues. Yeah, they're they're, they're due for a good one. Uh, XP was... Does, Does the trend continue? XP was legendary. It had like three quarters of all the machines in the world it, it was at more one than point that. it was like three quarters of all the machines in 2008 <laughs> like six years oh later. yeah like it was just it was titanic um and then vista flop seven great eight flop and now it appears that 10 will be great so 8.1 was a major release it was something that was saved up just because it didn't get a major version number it still counts, and I think it was the success that kind of brought brought more people into Windows 8, like the major version 8. Uh, 
Maybe. But it, it, it was also the, the thing that finally convinced companies like Dell and, and other PC manufacturers to stop selling Windows 7 PCs. Like they were still selling oh, Windows 7 yeah. PCs until about a few months after 8.1 was released. I think that was the version that finally get, got them to say, okay, this is at least as good as Windows 7 for our customers, like we feel. This is like, a possible upgrade. Is, I'm saying this as a person who has loved, who loved Vista when it came out as an as an improvement on XP. I loved 7 more and 8 more and 8.1 more. And now 10 is shaping up to be, again, better. So I'm saying this as as someone who sat there and listened to people say how terrible it was and just being like, have you actually used it? So I, I feel like there's a lot of hate from people who think it's worse because they don't understand it or they like, and I, and I get the whole for something to actually be good people who it, like, you almost have to convince people who hate it, that it's good. And so by that measure, bad versions of windows like Vista failed, but I don't think that they, that means they were objectively a step backwards, except maybe in very certain cases, like small edge cases in resource management. Need, there were issues with Vista at least. Well, yeah, there were issues with resource management as well as with permissions. The there was a bunch of stuff that I mean, Windows XP had pop-ups when you wanted to install something new. It popped up and said, "Are you sure?" Like it gave you a little thing to give you the chance to say, "No, this might not be it. This might hurt my computer. I don't want to do it." Vista did the same thing, and people were like, "Whoa, whoa, what's happening? Like, why is this different?" But I don't know. I was a again, huge defender of that, especially yeah, to great. people. I don't know. I had a lot of Mac users that were ridiculing it and I was just, I was frustrated because like OS X does the same thing, except it asks you for your root password. It's the same functionality. How can you ridicule this? Yeah. You know, Rob, you mentioned about that. It was just the general consensus, the popular opinion, but when it comes to investors and marketability and that kind of thing, that's all that matters. It's yeah. Oh, of opinion. course. You're, that's absolutely so, true. So you, you you can't really fault Microsoft for taking those criticisms to heart and trying to cater to those people because that's what drives their business is a popular opinion. So yeah, I just don't, I don't like when popular opinion is uninformed and even sometimes exactly wrong. Well, <laughs> and that's how it seemed to be. Rob, there is this place called the world where that happens a lot. Oh, I know. I don't like it a lot. <laughs> neither, neither do we, and that's uh, why we have future chat. Yeah, exactly. Um, Mike and I were talking this week about renaming the podcast "People Are Idiots," <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think that might not that might not get much love from people who don't know the show. <laughs> Welcome to everyone is stupid except for us, and in brackets, and our fans too. They're great. <laughs> If you listen, you're the exception. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's talk. Let's go to HoloLens because Mike. Because we just you, blatantly skipped over follow up, and we may as well finish off the whole Microsoft thing before actually following up on our previous stories. <laughs> We accidentally skipped over follow up. We will. We or you? Uh, I think say, you got really excited and just. Well, yes, you I were skipped a over because I'm, I'm red sitting here and looking you just at this charged, new Windows Rob. 10. <laughs> That's going to make for great listening, just two of us talking at once. 
<laughs> uh, we'll talk. We'll talk about it. But I want to talk about Hololens first. I I so bet Mike, you do. You you're you're down on this. You're hating on it preemptively. I'm not, I'm not hating, hating on, it. on it. You were this week. I, no, it's I'm skeptical and incredulous of the claims being made and the hype around it. But why don't you why don't you talk about it? Why don't you introduce it? Tell us what it is, and we'll okay. figure out where we land on where it's going to go. So, from my perspective, watching not only the the promo video, which is always going to sort of put a silver lining on every. Well, for those who thing, haven't heard of it, what is it? Uh, so, Hololens is the closest thing I can can attribute it to, but it's not a very good comparison. Is I guess the Oculus virtual reality stuff, and it also combines some of Google Glasses features in that it's like it lets you run programs and it lets you actually connect to the internet and uh it basically is a computer that goes on and around your face so it it looks kind of like futuristic glasses that a lot of people have been making pop culture comparisons to various sci-fi movies that have glasses with a heads-up display but the thing to me that stands out is that it's not it's not augmented reality in that it scans your environment and tells you stuff about what's going on, but it's augmented reality in the, in the holographic sense in that it can actually project three dimensional things into the space around you. And Mike, you're shaking your head. It's Why? not holographic. <laughs> no, but when you have this on, it is holographic. It looks holographic. It's not. It's holographic in the sense that the sense that I'm using the word holographic is that the thing that you're looking at stays in place. If you if you look at something from a different perspective, you're going to see the different perspective of it. You are looking at something as though it's in 3D. So if you're standing, if you're standing in one position looking at it, you see one side of uh, whatever thing they did a demo and it was a it, it was a guy standing there in miniature. If you rotate your body around 90 degrees to see a different side of the thing the thing will stay exactly where it was in your vision and where it should where it should be and will have rotated as you rotate around like like as though there was a person standing there but see it's not holographic because it's not projecting anything it's in in it's your project, vision it, it, in your field of vision it's it it replicates what you're looking at using cameras and then, sure. and then I'm it, not trying and then to suggest it, that it's in it 3D. I'm not trying to suggest that it's actually there in your field of view, but not out there in reality, just w- within your glasses. But this, this is the like the big step towards that. No, and that's fair, but don't call it that. But if everyone, if if you're wearing these glasses, Microsoft could theoretically set up a, a movie theater type atmosphere where everyone gets into an auditorium. Everyone's wearing these glasses. You could watch a three-dimensional play happen. A 3D play that would literally give you depth of field because everything is literally where it should be. Literally? Literally? Literally. Literally. <laughs> and th- there are a couple developers that I follow on. <laughs> I don't know. Fine. <laughs> it, it, it is literally, but I'll stop saying the word literally. There are a couple developers I follow on Twitter that that do Microsoft stuff, and they're saying that after looking a little bit into the the software side of things, 
this is a system like the the APIs that they're using to talk to this interface that you wear on your face could be applied to a technology that is going to give you an actual actual hologram. The difficulty that we have humans have in projecting actual three-dimensional holograms is that with visible light, you need a medium to display something on. You can't just display something on air because light just goes straight through air. So in any time you see a, a three-dimensional holographic depiction of something on TV, if it, if for it to be realistic, you need to have either uh, some kind of a particulate material like a fog or something in the air that the image is being projected onto. So that is our limiting factor physically. And this is like a step in the right direction. I don't know that we can ever really get to a point where you can project something into 3D space where there's just invisible air there. So from that perspective, I think this is going to be fantastic because it's it's more it's it's so much more than just augmented reality. You can the the example they use is you can open a program with a with a some kind of video player and you can have the that video player projected onto your wall in your living room and you can they they do an example where they you can stretch out the video screen virtually to make it larger and fill up the entire wall if you want you can have a Skype call going on and you can you can apparently pin and unpin the window from your view so you can either have it stuck on the wall your the vir, like virtually stuck on the wall so when you move around the room it stays on the wall or you can have it follow you around at a certain distance so it's always three or four feet away from your face. And if you walk around, it'll follow you. And that kind of technology, the fact that they were, they developed that completely in secret and they were actually able to do a live demo of someone building a three-dimensional object using the technology as it stands now. is just crazy. Like this, it's basically a prototype at this point. It's similar to Google glass, but it's so much further ahead in terms of functionality than what Google glass was. What, what I kind of liken it to is, I don't know if you guys have played like first person shooters before, but that's kind of what you're being put into when you wear these, these goggles, because based on some of the the various uh, hands-on demo uh, reviews that I've read, you, you have to essentially map out the area area that you're going to be, you know, working in. And then it allows a computer to be, you know, quote-unquote projecting whatever onto whatever surface so say if you had if you owned a pair you could map out your house so that just anytime you put them on they'd recognize what area you're in and then yeah like you said you put like a skype window here um you know a netflix movie on your wall or in your living room um and then you know a cookbook here or just, you know, kind of some sort of demo on how to cook over by your kitchen. And just as you walk around, those things just stay there because it's all mapped within the computer on your face, but it's not obviously not being projected in real life. Because like you said, I don't know if that's going to ever be possible, but I think this is kind of as good as it's going to get. It's good as it's going to get for the next few years, at least I think. But the, the cool thing to me is that, when you have a computer, you're limited to this tiny, this box, not necessarily tiny. You could have a giant screen, but uh, you're limited to the space that it affords you. And to me, the ability to take a video, like you can literally manipulate a video screen with your hand and you can place it on uh, virtually on the wall next to you. 
you can turn away from that video screen, still hear what's going on as though like it's got three, it's got what they call surround sound, but it's just in your head. So if you turn away from that TV, it is as though the TV is now on your left-hand side or whatever the case may be. It, it, it will move around in your head and the, the audio will come from that direction. But that, that's no, that's no different than how computer games work. No, it's not, but it's, it's all built in. And like the fact that this is a device that fits on your head and doesn't require an external computer to work is the, probably the most fascinating thing. Like they, they built in this whole big thing and just so cool. I can't, it sounds really cool. I can't wait to try it. It sounds like the stuff from minority report. Yeah. Like, I, like I'm not trying to say it's not cool, but it's, it's not as I don't, I, it's not as futuristic as people are claiming it to be. It's, it's a really cool application of the technology that we're literally already using in first person computer games. Like, but it's, it's strapped to your face. So you're the character. And as you move around the accelerometers and the cameras and that type of stuff are like changing your view within that screen, but all the manipulations being done within the computer. So, you know, you're saying you're moving screens around, like that's no different than just using a cursor on your computer and clicking and dragging it somewhere. But it's, no, but it's in this just, case, you're, you're, you're interacting with it, with your hands and your head and your eyes versus, you know, keys on the keyboard and your, your mouse. Now, let me just, let me just pause here. Mike, would you like this more? If Apple had come out with it, really? Would you like it more if Google came out with it? <laughs> Marginally, <laughs> no. But so the, like, it's it's cool, and I'd I'd have a lot of fun using it. But I I don't. People are being very, like, they're they're stretching the limits of vocabulary in describing it. Don't you just hate it when people are happy? <laughs> it seems like it. It's just the worst. Like they're all excited and stoked and it's just so annoying, isn't it? <laughs> the the difference to me between first person shooters and the HoloLens, at least the applica- potential applications of it, is that your first person shooter is limited to the screen that you can watch it on or that you can play it on. Like you're using a controller to like no matter what you do, you're limited to the number of buttons they can stick on a controller and how fast you can press them and what's going on in front of you. If you have, if you have a game like duck hunt is being the very basic version of it, you can aim at the screen. Oh my God. Are they bringing back duck hunt? That would be amazing. No, but okay. So I'll, that would actually be cool me, with the hollow lens. Let me move you through duck this. Hunt with so, a hollow lens. Like it could be anywhere in the room with you. That's what I'm saying. Think about duck hunt in a computer. Like this is a first person shooter. It's kind of. Like it's the very first one of the first ones. You literally have a gun and you shoot at a duck, and there's a there's a sensor so it knows where you're shooting, and if you're close enough, then it'll hit it. But think of the difference between having duck hunt on a screen, even a screen the size of a wall, and shooting at virtual ducks, and literally holding a a real sized gun in three dimensional space and having ducks pop up and shooting at them. Like you can swivel. Three or 180 degrees around and shoot a duck behind you because it's an immersive like, experience. That's the difference. But it could be in your living room. You can play a video game in your living room, but you can't swivel around and shoot a duck behind you 
in a video game that exists today. But on the controller, you'd swivel around and it would rotate the first how, person Do you not view. see how much better it would be with doing no, it with I'm a, not with saying a it's not projected better. hologram? I'm not saying it's that. It's so much better. That's, that's the whole point is that you can think of a hundred different applications. Like if, you, if I sat down for a day or two, I could come up with hundreds of different amazing applications for this HoloLens that would make an experience so much better than traditional video games no, are. No, I agree. I, I agree that it's better. But it's it's thousands of times better. It's not a hologram. It's a whole new experience. It's not a hologram. So, so rather than I'm not saying it's a hologram. <laughs> rather than debating the degree to which this is a step forward, maybe we could do follow up. Fine. Well, I'm going to come back to this. <laughs> Fine. Whatever. I'm not going to come it's back fine. to this this week. We'll leave it for Whatever. now. But for the record, I think it's amazing. And I'm not saying it's literally a hologram, but it's holographic enough. For my purposes, Nick, <laughs> did you did you put this in here? Do you want to talk about BPA again? I think this is the last time we're talking about. I don't, know, I don't that think was, I put that, that, that in there. Okay, what? Uh, so what's going on with BPA now? <laughs> They're saying it's okay now. Oh, is BPA a hologram? <laughs> no, it's. I, I wanted to to bring up, and maybe it's just more an illustration of how ever changing or contradictory these news reports are. But now the Another health organization is saying that kind of what we talked about before, that the current levels or the normal levels of which we consume BPA is not hazardous to our health. Just okay. don't be doing shooters of BPA. That's kind of rule of thumb. But in, in the doses you would normally get, it's fine. Well, that is people why. Have, so what people have been saying is wrong. It's, it's hazardous for, again, like we talked about before, when it's when using... BPA materials with infants and when those materials are used improperly. So when you're microwaving non-microwavable containers that have BPA in them with infants, then that's when it starts becoming hazardous. What if you're letting baby do your taxes? That should be fine. Just don't let them lick your hands after touching receipts. No, if they're doing your taxes. Right. You're handling the re- you're no, handling the, the baby's receipts handling the receipts. Don't let the baby lick their hands after they're done. Oh, handling lick them. their hands. Yeah. I thought you said your oh, hands. Okay. okay. Are there little tiny baby gloves that they could wear while doing taxes? <laughs> that may be an interesting. And it's marketing. also they can handle the receipts. It's just if you use hand sanitizer and wipe, oh, wipe out right. the microbiome that you shouldn't touch receipts. So you mm. should be covered either way then, because yeah. chances are just it, don't use hand sanitizer. Let your no baby, baby do your taxes. Use hand sanitizer. Let your yeah. baby do your taxes. Just don't let them use hand sanitizer after. Beforehand. Fair. Before. Right. 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 <laughs> or immediately after. Let's say that. <laughs> A baby probably just shouldn't use hand sanitizer is the takeaway That's, here. Yeah, it's true. Their their microbiome is is fragile enough as it is. Yeah. Uh, so, so, Nick, I have to assume this Latin point is is yours. You want to clarify some Latin legal I terms. I done goofed two weeks ago. I was not called out by anyone, but I should have been by we, rights. We called we you called out. It, we just weren't <laughs> confident in it. Yeah we, yeah, we didn't know what was right. We just knew you were wrong. <laughs> so, anyway, habeas corpus, uh, it is a review of the... Re- of the legality of holding someone in detention, I believe is like the extremely short version of it. Yeah. What I was thinking of was mens rea and actus reus, which is the, I guess, twofold test of determining whether a crime has been committed. 
So mens rea is the guilty mind. You have to know that what you're doing is wrong in order for you to be like guilty of something. And you also have to have done something wrong, which is the guilty act actus reus. Right. So yeah, that's why so what you're saying is Mike was right. And I was right to back him up and you were wrong. <laughs> I, I think overall you're still smarter than us at Latin legal terms, but <laughs> um, I still don't know if you can apply habeas corpus to monkeys, unless well, you they, have. Well, of course, did. apparently did. Yeah, in Argentina, unless you have a very broad definition of what a person is, or like it, yeah, that's it, the whole point. It wouldn't work here, is what I'm saying. No, yeah, and that's why it hasn't. Yeah, but it, that's why we talked about it, because it was so interesting that a non-human was granted human rights in that sense. Well, it's not... Is it really classified as human rights in that Person case? Person rights. Well, yeah, they were granted personhood, essentially. In that sense of not being detained. Yeah. yeah. What a stupid They were given case. the right to freedom without without anything, any wrongdoing. Without mens rea or actus reus. Exactly. What you're saying. Yeah. Are you happy with that now? Can we get back to the show, please? I would have (laughs) to go back and review what exactly was said to determine how wrong or right people were. So it seems like Mike and I remember the conversation vividly and you just have no recollection of it. I don't remember a lot of useful things, Rob. Based on what you said we Mike was right. I'll give Mike full credit for being right, but then my quick Wikipedia research validated his opinion. I still think his, there are complexities you're not grasping. Of course but. there are complexities. <laughs> we talked about it for five minutes. We were talking about personhood for primates. It's not really that either. Okay. Let's let's move on. Fair enough. Uh Mike, you got a few news stories here. Um why don't you why don't you bring them up one at a time? <laughs> Mike didn't want to name this segment, so <laughs> that's the best segue you're gonna get. <laughs> They're all very related. So okay. um so there's a uh, a development from Facebook um that they're gonna start as you guys probably well know that you can flag posts as inappropriate or just decide to remove them from your newsfeed for whatever reason that you might have. Um so Facebook is I believe starting to roll out the ability to, I don't know if it's a widespread rollout at this point, um, to flag posts as false or misleading or quote unquote hoaxy. I don't know if that's actually the word they use, but that's the articles they're saying you can flag hoaxes. Um, now I'm sure you guys all have experience with, you know, the random article posted by someone and then someone else comments and posts a Snopes link to saying, Oh, this is shown to be false, whatever. Um, but now Facebook is offering the availability to um, like officially flag a post as fake. That's not obviously fake. Like people post onion articles yeah. all the time. So those aren't going to be put under the same umbrella. Yeah. Um, this is more where um, I don't, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but say like, Oh, criminals are going around unlocking cars with FM radios. Like, I don't know. That's a, and those all yeah. types of stories. Um, and usually they're very chain lettery, kind of something that you might find that your aunt passes along to you in email um, that are obviously more to the story or just outright fake. Um, 
but those you'll be starting to be able to flag. And if enough people or Facebook decides that they need to be taken down, then those posts will be removed um, so that people won't start propagating fake information. Right. So the, the, you mentioned the onion, they actually, there was a news story a few months ago. It might've been even like six months ago now that they were taught thinking about having a satire tag, like Facebook would automatically search out links from places like the onion and put satire at the end. So people wouldn't necessarily click on them thinking that it was real. Uh, so this seems like an extension of, of that. They're trying to categorize links and news. And so I don't think that like Facebook isn't going to outright block these stories. They're not going to say you can't post this because we've gotten word that this link is, is a hoax. But what they would do is just shove it down in people's news feeds. They would either not show it to many people or they would stop its spread. But if, if it got popular, if a post like that got lots of likes, it would still make it into people's news feeds. And there, I don't think they would put a designated thing that says this is a hoax. They would just make it less likely that that post gets promoted. I'm not sure what the exact method is, but the the article I read on it seemed to indicate that it was a form of censorship. The, the same way that if someone posted pornography, then that would like literally be removed. The post would be removed because it violated whatever terms and conditions. So this mm-hmm. is it, under that same menu when you go and say, hide this post. Yeah. So that's, that's where it comes up is when you say, hide this post. And then it says why. And then one of the options is this is false or misleading or fake or hoaxy or whatever. And then when you select huh. that, that kind of allocates that reason to that post. And then if enough of it gets it the same way that if something's inappropriate, if enough people flag it as inappropriate, then they'll deal with it in the way that they do. And I don't know how they deal with those types of posts, but um, ideally it's right. just to prevent the spread of these false news stories. Uh, interesting. Where do they draw the line between like, a hoax and something that's just blatantly false, but yeah. has yeah. evidence. Yeah. So on the on the audio version, here, you couldn't see the finger quotes. So what it says here is they they word it as the thing you can choose. So there's annoying and distasteful is a one flag. Pornography is another flag. It goes against my views. Uh, it advocates violence or harm. And then the one that the example they're using is it's a false news story. So I think false news story is different from hoax. Yeah. Uh, is it though? You could consider one the other, I think in some cases, but in general, a false news story doesn't necessarily mean it's a hoax. Like the example they're using in the, at the top of this, this is an article from Wired. They're talking about Sarah Palin joining Al Jazeera America. That's not a hoax. That's just made up. Well, yeah, but yes, that's there's the, a real article Well, <laughs> from the Washington Post. Um, but they're, they're just not true. They're not, they're not even hoaxes. They're just things that news outlets put out without actually fact checking. I think it's different than saying it's a hoax. Like you wouldn't, if someone came out and said, uh, I can't think of a good example. I'm trying to use like the Blair Witch Project yeah. as an example. But see, but like, I don't think there's a, haven't you guys seen those types of posts where it's like, Oh, criminals are going around like mugging people while they're like 
like buckling their babies into their seats. Oh, keep an eye out, notify police as soon as you see them do this or whatever. Like, like it's those types of stories where it's like, that sounds kind of outrageous. And then I'll, then I'll look on Snopes and it says, Oh, this story goes back to like 2008 when it was circulating via email. And then the, the post is the exact same wording as was like six years ago. So then right away, then I say, okay, well, this isn't like, it, there's elements of truth to it. It may have originated somewhere, but it's not a real thing right now. Right. So it's those but, types of ones that yeah. you want to hide because then, yeah, thousands of people start spreading it saying, oh, these people are doing this when it's like, well, no, that's not actually true. This is an old chain letter. Yeah. So an example I can think of now, like recently would be the, that story that went around that teenage girls were soaking tampons and alcohol. Right. And they were like butt chugging, which – like it, it, I don't think that story itself is necessarily hurting people, but it is a false news story, and it hurts. It hurts relationships that parents have with their children, because suspecting someone of doing that is just crazy. Like maybe yes, someone, maybe one teenager did that somewhere, but that doesn't mean it's spreading, and that doesn't mean that anyone, any child that hears the story is going to go, "Whoa, I should try that." <laughs> it's just not say no to so butt chugging. <laughs> that's not even. That's not necessarily censorship. There's a there's a thing, and th- this Facebook does this already to some extent. There's a thing. Oh, what's it called? Uh, Red. Oh yeah. So it's called shadow banning, and basically what what can happen to on social certain social services. I think Reddit is one of the people, one of the organizations that can do this. They basically can shadow ban a user from using from posting somewhere, and so what it does is it lets them post. They can post whatever story they want. They can comment whatever they want. They can try to manipulate this this system by posting things in any way they want but nobody sees it except for them so they're they're talking into a void and nobody else can see it or hear it so that's kind of i think what what facebook would do they wouldn't censor any post but so if you posted a link on your newsfeed it would show up on your newsfeed as the, as you posting it but it just wouldn't spread anywhere that's not censorship it's just a corporation exercising its right to limit what people see like what what spreads so this kind of news story would just not spread. And it, once it got voted a hoax by enough people, it just it would just remain on those people's news feeds and it, would, it wouldn't get propagated anymore. So in that sense, I think it's a good thing. And, and, and that under no, none except the most paranoid uh, interpretations is censorship. Like you can't call that censorship. If someone goes to your profile, they're going to see that you posted it. You just won't, you won't see it in a news feed. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, there's the fear, I guess, that they were saying is that it would turn into, you know, Democrats versus Republicans and hiding each other's stories because they don't agree with them or whatever. But you'd think that Facebook, whoever moderators they have evaluating these reports, they'd see that they're not actually false or hoaxes or whatever, that it's just people trying to abuse the system and they wouldn't follow through on it. So it's obviously, yeah, not an automatic thing that oh once it hits 10 flags and it gets hidden yeah right so well there's also like i mean the flag that says this doesn't agree with my views that yeah. sounds like you know it's not gonna discriminate against one side or the other it's just you're gonna see what you want to Yay, yeah confirmation bias Woo. well that's facebook is basically a confirmation bias machine now it shows you more of what you want to see and less of what you don't want to see yeah did you i think did we talk about it how they have an algorithm now that senses how long like how many and how long you're hovering over those autoplay videos for and if you if you watch them 
they'll show you more videos. And if you scroll <laughs> I'm past glad I them, never watch them. <laughs> if you scroll past them, you don't they won't show you yeah. they'll show you less because they, right. it knows what you're paying attention to. Yeah. There are also algorithms that know what is on what is actually on your screen. So for instance, I've seen the last version I, the last time I noticed this, uh actually I noticed it with the Windows 10 uh demo when I was playing it right before lunch. Um is that when you switch away from a window, like when you put a window behind another window, there there is an API somewhere that says, is tab visible? And if, if you can see the tab, it'll play it in high resolution. And if you can't see the tab, if the tab's hidden behind another window, it will play and it will still play, but it'll play in, at a lot lower bit rate. So it'll save bandwidth, it'll save everything. And I, so I've seen that, I saw that in the World Cup as well, where I could be doing work and I'd be listening to the game in the background and I would go to check the score, go to see what had happened because I heard a cheer or something. And it would suddenly, it would be really low res when I clicked on it. And then it would jump back up to HD right away. So yeah, I, they have all kinds of things to to track this stuff, which is cool. But at the same time, it gives them a lot of power that I don't, I don't think they necessarily deserve. But it's, it's useful. It is useful. It It is in that way, but it's. The fact that it's completely transparent to the user, even if they went looking to figure out how it worked, I think is potentially damaging in certain circumstances. I'm not saying they should stop doing it, and I, they won't, and you can't stop them from doing it. But I don't know. I, I don't like it. We we're gonna have to we're gonna have to talk. This is bringing a whole big thing into mind. I'm gonna write it down for maybe next week. I don't like the siloing of content. I don't like posting a YouTube link to Facebook. And getting this tiny little square thumbnail of the video and then some text saying it came from YouTube and then posting a Facebook video and it's going to show you this giant preview and autoplay it. I, our Twitter does the same thing with Instagram photos. They don't show you the photo unless it comes from Twitter itself. Facebook does the same thing even with pictures. If you post a picture to Facebook, it'll show you the picture huge. And if you post a, a Twitter link, which is just a picture to Facebook, it'll show you, it'll be like, this tiny little preview and then a description of what the picture is. I don't like the siloing of different content from different places, depending on what it is. I think if, if you're posting a picture, it's every platform should do the best to show you all the stuff that's posted there. But then that's, that's the cost of using a free service and they're not going to be a billboard for Twitter. I was going to say, that sounds like you want to read Reddit, Rob. Yeah, I do. I, I generally don't get any news from Facebook. Maybe Google Plus. Google Plus is also pretty good, I think. It is pretty good. I, I do like that. Although I think I've subscribed to too many communities in Google Plus now. Because I just see I see so many community posts that it it <clears throat> blocks out everything else. But that's that's on me to fix. Uh so I'm gonna put that in to talk about more later, but we'll we'll move past it for now. What's what's the next story on the docket here? <laughs> um so on a uh, on a on a related note regarding censorship and privacy, um, there's been word out of a school in the states, um, Illinois, and they've sent a letter to parents saying that if they have allegations against a student about cyberbullying, then it is part of their policy to. Um, ask for passwords to social media accounts in order to investigate further. And they use a law in Illinois 
that says that schools must make efforts or have a plan action plan to follow up on cyberbullying allegations. Um, now, I haven't looked into the law itself, but it sounds like it's an interpretation of that law that they're using to, you know, kind of have the right to access these students' accounts with by asking for their password. Um, and obviously, this has caused some varied responses. Um, so what do you guys think about the, the responsibility of schools to protect their students and, and be responsible also for the privacy of the students? Um, <sighs> I mean, like, it's a vet, it's against the policy of every social media site to share your password. Like, I think it's in most agreements that you cannot share your password and you're the only one who has the right to access it. So there's that. That's fair. I think that so the whole thing here is that they're using it for things like I don't think it's just bullying. I think there are things like drug uh, searches that they're they're talking about trying to use this power for. In the case of bullying, if if a student has evidence on social media that they are being bullied, give that evidence by all means. What you don't need the other side of evidence if if this case ends up going to trial or whatever the juvenile equivalent of a trial in that certain circumstance would be if it's i believe a, if it's, it's a trial just no but if it's just like if it's just meeting in the principal's office with oh. both sets of parents it, it's so easy to say okay one the, the kid that's being bullied can present their evidence that they were bullied and then the kid who was doing the bullying can say no i have evidence that i didn't bully which is impossible. Like nobody but... needs nobody needs a password. You can't have evidence of lack. You, that's, yeah. that's part of the fundamentals of science. I you think. could at least okay. You could refute the evidence of the person, but neither in neither case does the school board need a password for a student. Like the, their private accounts for a reason. Set up something like Google Apps, uh, and allow them to communicate via a method you can track if that's what you want to do and like make sure that they're aware that their their communications are being tracked. Uh, there's a feature in Slack if you pay for it, the the collaboration, the team uh, program that they've just recently instituted where the administrator can turn on uh, full message history, like the ability to search full message history. But in so doing, it notifies all the users, hey, we're going to be doing this. So keep your conversations on, on work. Uh, and obviously, unless the employer has a policy where they are a lot less hands-on and don't like, they would rather, like if I was an employer, I would rather people use the tool for everything and then do work on it as well. than say, okay, don't, don't talk about anything off work topics in this tool. It's just for work. Um, but the, the whole Facebook, uh, if someone wants your Facebook password, I don't think they're doing it right. I think there are better ways to get information. I think this is almost, I guess I hadn't thought about the whole, you know, you can present your own evidence aspect. And I think that's just a failure on the administrator part for the school of understanding how to utilize technology. Like obviously like people don't realize you can do a screenshot or you can, yeah. you know, yeah, pretty much screenshots on their own should be enough to, and if the, even if the parents need to assist their kids in collecting that evidence, then that should be enough. You should, yeah, you should need to 
hand over access or at the very most get the person to log into their Facebook and say, oh, we heard you sent a message to whoever, like open up your Facebook. But even then that's, that that's not necessary because the message will have gotten to the other person. So yeah, yeah, yeah you shouldn't yeah. need, should need access. And, and it also, it's worth pointing out that in most cases like this, if, if bullying, like bullying is being treated as more and more seriously an issue, which it, it is a serious issue. Uh, there are cert- lots of circumstances, these programs, these services that companies offer have built into the terms of service. The fact that if someone gets a court order that they have to turn over any records they have for whatever message history for the person. Uh, and so if you're treating this as a serious issue, which they are, then get a court order and just get the records. There's no, there's no need at any point to be like, we need your password or like you're suspended or whatever the cases may be that they're trying to do. It's just not necessary. There are other ways to do it and other better ways that don't violate people's privacy in other than in ways that we've specifically set up for when someone's hurting someone else. Like that's why those laws exist and that's why they're written the way they're written. So use them that way. So Uh, so there's one more story here. Are we saying let the judiciary do its thing? Yeah. Okay. That's what we're saying. Awesome. (laughs) Which makes sense to me. Me too. So you got one more story here also about passwords. Uh, Yeah. So they, I don't know if you guys had seen the various uh, articles kind of citing the same, same research from some group that did a study on what the most commonly hacked passwords are. Um, And so they released a top 25 list and all of them are what you'd expect as far as one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Um, you know, let me in all those, all those types of generic non secure passwords are all the most commonly hacked. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked a bit about before alternatives to passwords, whether it's biometrics um, or, you know, USB keys or any of those types of things. So, in light of the ability to hack passwords and just either force your way or just guess at a password, do you feel that the future is to move away from typing in passwords? And do you see that as a more secure option? I think it's definitely more secure. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, okay. So, I, I got a bit of backstory on this. So the, the company that did this p- password stuff is Splash Data. And I read an art, a story on uh, Ars Technica, which was, came out the 22nd. I think I read it yesterday. But uh, so this guy who's a security consultant wrote a story about this whole top 10 passwords. Yes, the the worst passwords are still 123456 password and then like varying numbers, the word QWERTY. Those are the worst passwords. But he pointed out that uh, in 2011, that he did the same, like he does this analysis every year. And so in 2011, 8.5% of passwords, 8, 8.5% of people uh, had the password, either password or 123456 or, or these top few passwords. But this year, in only four years, I guess, since he did the research, I don't know if this is 2014 or 2015, but uh 
Now it's less than 1% of people that have those passwords. Mm. So he made the argument that, yes, the worst passwords are still the same and they're still bad, but so many less people are using those bad passwords. Well, I so, know... I know that in several IT de- or several IT departments anyway, whenever that article comes out every year, they basically send it to everyone and say, hey, by the way, if you have one of these passwords, change it. Yeah. And so th- it, I, that list is never going to change or maybe it, w- it won't change until these percentages get down to zero. But g- in general, people are going to use passwords like this. A lot of people don't want to have to worry about them, have the mental burden of remembering a hard password, and they don't think that they're worth hacking. They don't think they have any information in there. And so they're fine with just having the password be password. It's it's the easiest thing for them, and to them there's little or no risk. But in general, people are getting better. There's obviously also the fact that, that 123456 is a very easy-to-guess password, but it's a lot... Passwords that are used infrequently aren't going to make the list. So if you you could have like the password A1, B2, C3, D4, that password is just as easy to guess. It's not any more secure, but it's harder to think of that. It's less common. That password is going to be just as easy to hack than as 123456 if you're using a brute force method. And typically what the people who are using a brute force method who are cracking passwords are doing is taking a list of the most common passwords and using them. So, and then once that's done, they go into lengths, things where they try every combination of things with one character, every combination of things with two characters, three characters, four characters. So the longer and more complicated your password is, unless it's already a common password, in which case it's already on a list of passwords that they try first. And these, these common password lists can be 10,000 or 100,000 passwords long. And what they tend to do is... Anytime there's a password dump, like some some person leaks passwords, they take those lists and try to brute force other services because people tend to repeat passwords across services. So if you use a password on one thing, you're probably going to use that same password on another thing. So mo- in most cases, this isn't a guy sitting at a computer going, all right, I wonder if their password is password. Nope, it's not. All right, your password one, two, three, four, five, six. No, it's not. They're sitting there trying millions of passwords in a few seconds to a few minutes, trying to crack as many as they can. They're, they're going, it's a numbers game. They're not trying to crack this one super secure password. They're trying to crack, they have a million or 10 million accounts. They're trying to get as many as they can, just ten, spending 10 seconds on each one. And so they're only going to crack the weakest passwords. And that's why the weakest passwords are the ones that it's most important to improve. And we're doing that. It went down from 8% down to less than 1% in three or four years. Now, I think... I, just as a thought experiment here. Yeah. What if you go to random.org, you use their password generation tool, you have a separate password for each account, but you keep them all on a sticky note in your desk drawer? What do we think the comparative merits are? <laughs> Versus using the word the, like password password on everything? Or just in general password reuse or crappy passwords. I think you're depends who has access to your desk drawer. I, yeah, I guess like it's, (laughs) uh, you're far more vulnerable to in person, you know, attacks, but man, if you've got a random string of 
I don't know, let's say 25 characters. Actually, no, that probably wouldn't work for most things. 10 characters. <laughs> probably, I mean, likely it's uh, it's more or less immune to common password attempts. But it would probably be, I don't know, brute force-wise, it's just a 10-character password, I guess. Yeah. Have you guys used password managers before? Because that's essentially what that is, is that it, it generates a random password for each service you want to. And then all you need to remember is the password for your password manager. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. I've so never I've heard seen of that. Them. That sounds great. You've never even heard of that, I've Nick? never even heard of that. <laughs> so the only reason I don't use that type of Damn service it, is because if that password manager service gets hacked, then, like, you're screwed. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. Guess. Uh, the the positive of a password manager is that they're very good. Like they're professionals at passwords, so you have to trust the people at things like Last Nick. If you're listening, LastPass and I'm is not a good password no. service. <laughs> what One Password is another good password service. I don't use either of those. I I have my own system for passwords, so it's. Basically, I don't want to have having all your eggs in one basket is the problem to me, and so LastPass is a basket. So you have to depend you have to depend on the security of the basket. Where I like having complete control. That's exactly my and, point. Yeah, in LastPass you can set up your you can write your own passwords or you can click generate password. You don't have to use their twenty five character alphanumeric password. You can just use whatever password you want. I, I personally have complete, not not complete faith, but enough faith in Chrome's password manager that I just use that. I don't have to remember passwords because I just leave them in there. And then anytime I log into any computer anywhere, I have access to all my passwords and then I can just wipe it afterwards. And it's so great because it goes to your phone now. I'm so happy. Yeah. I well, can just log into Chrome's everything. password manager, the, at first, like there's a whole big argument about uh, or at least a year ago there was about how Chrome's password manager was just plain text. You could just, if you were on someone's computer, you can get into their stuff because you can just go to the password manager and see all the passwords. Now you have to enter the computer's master password in order to get into that, mm-hmm. that list. But security people unanimously yell out when, when this argument comes up, if someone has physical access to your machine, anyhow, all this stuff is useless because they can just get in. They have, Physical access to it. (laughs) So the argument's invalidated. So it all depends about the encryption as it's going through the internet, Mm. which Google is one of the best, if not the best company at encryption. I'm sure if, I'm sure that uh, North Korean hackers tried to hack Google before they tried to hack Sony or thought, nope, Google is too good at this game. We're going to go for one of the weaker ones. Like there's a reason Google doesn't get hacked. It's, they're very good at security. They, they're they good at security because they've taken, they go and find researchers that are studying pa- password security, network security, and they hire them at like twice or three times whatever anyone else can afford. There's a reason that they're so good because they're that's their goal is to be the best at that. Well, and that's why you see companies like Home Depot and Target getting hacked because they're still, excuse me, they're still running, you know, in some cases, Windows 95 or yeah. whatever and they don't have a tech department they right. 
you know, and they'll have default passwords for everything still and all this kind of stuff. And they're not worrying about the technology side of things. They're worrying about selling, you know, hammers and clothes, like, you know, so that's not their specialty, like you said. So yeah, you're going to target the weaker, more vulnerable ones for sure. Yeah. And they're worried about leaving Canada too. All right, so um, that's it. Well, that's it for the the news stories for now. Nick, you brought up a point yes or last week that I really think we should talk about, and that is cutting the cord. I think we should do a check back in on how much cable we watch or want to watch, and in, in online services we use to consume media, especially video media. Uh, so, do you do you remember saying this last week? Yeah. I'm, I'm now going to check with you every time we reference a past episode uh, oh good what did you want to say on the on the topic of consumption of cable slash video media i don't know that i wanted to say anything in particular i just wanted to get everyone's thoughts on the matter because i mean what i really want cable for is usually watching the leafs but other than that most of the shows i watch i can find online just from the even the broadcaster's website yeah yeah and that's really it i guess i mean what do you guys think i ran into a very frustrating i don't say very mildly frustrating situation two two weeks ago whenever the great cup was held or maybe it was a month okay. ago that was a long that time was a long ago, time ago. feels like a couple weeks ago it was a while ago <laughs> Remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I was cheering for a winning team. So, well, I was cheering for the Stamps because they were playing. Um, yeah. And, uh, and they won. Man, a, but a team in the finals. That's crazy. Spoiler I don't alert. know what that's like. <laughs> um, you can just, can you see my shirt right now? Oh, there you go. Yep, oh, there it is. There yep. <laughs> Speaking of winners. <laughs> um, so anyway, I was I was following along on, on Facebook and I was like, oh, it's towards the end of the game. It's pretty close. I'm going to go to catch the end of the game. So then, of course, I don't, we don't have cable. So, you know, I start, you know, looking around on, oh, you know what it was? It's actually the World Juniors. It wasn't the Grey Cup. That's why it, uh, it feels that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, Grey Cup was another one that I wanted to, to watch too. But um, World Juniors were on and again, Canada was playing. So I was looking it up and... Uh, you know, going on TSN, Sportsnet, CBC, couldn't find it. Then I look up, oh, you know, World Juniors live stream, and I think Sportsnet was showing it or something. Um, and so I go to their site, and I'm all like, yes, I can see the end of the game. And then it says, oh, enter your cable provider yep. login. Mm. I'm like, are you serious? Like, we've come oh, so far. We've come so far to move away from cable, and now you need cable to watch something online. Like, so, uh, that's, man... That grinds my gears. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you, you learn about, like, this is a slow transition. It's not going to happen overnight. The fact that they're putting stuff, they're learning about streaming. NBC is talking about streaming some of their shows live on the internet as they're being aired. It's a step in the right direction. There are companies that are doing it right. There are companies that are misguided and trying to do it right. And there are companies that are either wrong or just behind. I, I don't necessarily 100% mind people bundling their services with the cable subscription. But doing it in that way is just the worst possible way to do it. it. 
if you're going to have a service that bundles with online subscriptions, offer a tier like Rogers or, or Bell or TELUS or whatever your provider is, offer a tier that just gives you streaming services and doesn't give you any mm. cable because you're not having cable. Like offer a 20 or $30 internet services plan that would enable you to get all the online content without actually needing the cable. And then you can get rid of that infrastructure to provide the actual cable services and just provide internet, internet services. Like the companies are shooting themselves in the foot by doing this. Now, CBC does it right with how they stream the entire Olympic games, all those, all the events, you know, bat, you could watch previous episodes, same with the world cup. World cup was the same way. Yeah. You could go back mm-hmm. and watch all the games. You could watch highlights. Like I, mm-hmm. I watched a lot of world cup. I watched a lot of the Olympics because it was offered for free streaming, you know, there are ads and whatever, but you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm willing to watch a couple minutes of ads to be able yeah, to, yeah, it doesn't pay for itself. So yeah, ads, right. So, but at least it was offered and I could, I could watch it without having to pay for a cable subscription. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's also the benefit of, I don't know. I like CBC. It's a public broadcaster. It has the interest of the people as its primary driver. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I just, I watch a lot of CB stuff, CBC stuff online. Yeah. Cable it, dying industries do this. They like the, the, the internet service provider side of mobile providers are doing this too. They're, they're taking this thing that used to be monetized cable, or in this case, text messages and phone minutes that used to be monetizable because people depended on them and they use them all the time. And they're, they're not adapting fast enough to keep up with the internet in general. So they're providing the internet, but they don't realize that people don't actually care about getting minutes and messages anymore. They care about data. And to make up for people not using their minutes and messages anymore, like not using the ones they have in their plan, they have to ratchet up data costs because they, they still, they still want to make their money. Even if they can't offer, even if their their prime, the things that used to be their prime services are no longer being used. They still have to make that money somehow. I think a big thing as far as that goes is like phone companies have invested a lot of money into infrastructure to support their voice and SMS services. But if people are moving, if they, if they stop offering those services and stop charging for them and only offer the data, then those, that infrastructure is going to be wasted because like, you know, it's, my understanding or my knowledge of kind of the infrastructure side of things isn't great, but I know that they, they run on different, um, you know, data streams or bands or whatever you want to call them. So, you know, they've paid for these bands and they expect they invest in it and say, okay, it's going to pay off in 40 years, 25 years, whatever. But if it's not being paid for, then that money is wasted. So they have to keep charging for it. And so that's why, that's why you don't see data only plans. They're making bad long-term investments and ch- charging us for their poor judgment. <laughs> that's... I, th- I think that's 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 a good segue into the uh, the news of Google's yeah. new and WhatsApp is doing a similar thing. But to start with Google, there's there's rumblings of Google looking to release their own um, mobile cell service that is going to be based around data-only plans. Um, which is kind of the dream at this point. Yeah. 
Well, and also wireless networks. Like, not cell networks, but Wi-Fi networks. Oh, like, what do you mean? Like, I have to assume, and this might not be the case, but uh, they would have cities like Google Fiber Cities where the city would be blanketed in Wi-Fi and so that you could offload some of the cell traffic onto this wireless network, this Wi-Fi network. Similar to, uh, oh, what is it? I wanted to call it like Cricket Wireless or something. They have that. They had that plan where you could buy an, you'd buy an Android phone for fairly cheap, and it would give you like they were, they had the, a policy that you had unlimited data. But you only had unlimited data if you promised if you like promised like uh, basically pinky swore that you were going to use the Wi-Fi whenever possible. So you would take the burden off of their networks and still allow them to offer unlimited data. I assume they would do Google would do the similar thing. So would you guys do a data only if, and th- yep. this is, this is supposed <laughs> to be, this is intended to be in conjunction with a Google voice number. So you, you yes. in theory still have a telephone number, but to be routed through the Google voice service. Yep. Well, so long as I could do voice over IP, like, yeah, I'm, exactly. Well, it, now they've gone even further and they have voice over LTE now. So you're going to get amazing voice quality, better than, way better than phone lines for, for the same thing. Yeah. I, I recently, it was a mistake on the part of the caller, but I took a Google Hangouts call, a voice call on my phone, and it worked fine. It was great. I was very happy with the service. How did yeah. you take a Hangouts call? It just took over the screen and said, hey, you're getting a, a Hangouts voice call from person x oh but you had them on hangouts yeah yeah oh okay because have you guys used the um hangouts to landline or just regular phone number service i use it whenever i need to what's that i use it when i need to like if i need to make a long distance call or something yeah exactly yeah and, and with that it doesn't assign your device any sort of name or number on the computer yeah. on your phone Either one. Okay. I've done the it'll, one that... It'll give you the Google Voice phone number. Okay. I've done the one over, like, from Gmail. Like, I used to use that all yeah. the time to call home. Yeah. No, exactly. But, yeah. Because, yeah, it's really good for, for long distance. In North America. <laughs> yeah. Kaya moved to uh, South America for a time, and then I was like, oh, man. Although it's really cheap there, too. <laughs> oh, is it? It's maybe a cent per minute. Like, it's well mm-hmm. worth... If that was the only thing you had, it's well worth it. Yeah. Um, but it's it's good to see Google coming up with potentially coming up with a service of their own to to fill that gap of people who only want data on their their cell phone. Yeah, I'm I'm concerned because we've been hearing this for so long. Like they acquired Grand Central and turned it into Google Voice in like 2007, 2008. It might have even been earlier than that. It's been a while that we've been looking forward to this, but they, they also promised Google fiber or a similar sort of gigabit service for a while. And now they're doing it. So I'm still positive, hoping that it'll come, but quietly I'm like, it might be a while. Yeah. Uh, So what's this other, what's this other story here that you have from WhatsApp? It's, it's a similar type of service where WhatsApp is offering a SIM card 
for, I believe, $10. And it allows a year worth of unlimited WhatsApp usage um, for people who don't have a voice or data plan, but they want to be able to message to each other. Huh. Um, I'm not familiar with WhatsApp's service or abilities as far as being able to use SMS or if it's like a... Um, it's like an iMessage service. Oh, okay, so it is. Okay, so you have to be messaging other WhatsApp users then. I assume so, yeah. Mm-hmm. But for, for places where WhatsApp is widely adopted, such as iMessage, then it might be it might be worth someone getting that if if that's all they use. Yeah. So they're right now their model, their pricing model is ninety nine cents a year. And it's used extensively in third world and even second world countries. Like North America, we don't have a lot of WhatsApp use, but around the world it's huge. It's probably the biggest non SMS network. Uh, so it, it's important at this point to remember that WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. So Facebook is introducing this, a SIM card that will allow you to use, that will allow you to send messages to someone using WhatsApp. This is a push by Facebook into the mobile services game. I, WhatsApp wouldn't have done this without being bought by Facebook first. I'm sure it was in their long-term plan to eventually do something like this, but being bought by Facebook enabled them to actually put it through. I'm really interested to see what they do with this. Because Facebook has has been trying to crack mobile for a really long time and haven't been super successful with it. It's uh I'm it, I'm gonna be paying attention to it quite a bit. And it's it's gonna be interesting because in a lot of international places too, um, their phones come with dual SIM abilities. So you in yeah. theory, would be able to keep your normal network SIM in there as well as the WhatsApp one. And then the WhatsApp app would just use the the WhatsApp yeah. SIM card. Hmm. Um, so you, you could avoid paying for text messaging through your provider if you're only going to be using WhatsApp and then just pay the 10 bucks a year for unlimited messaging. Because I don't know what pricing structure is like in, say, Africa or Asia, but um, I'm sure there's some sort of pricing on text messages normally that you might not not need. Yeah, data is really expensive, but text messaging is is included, and so this this would be a great like the fact that Facebook has all this power as being this huge company. So they apparently they've got four hundred network operators in one hundred and fifty countries they're working with. So that's wow, crazy. It's pretty much worldwide at this point. I still don't want to install uh, Facebook messages on my phone, though. <laughs> Nick, do we really have to talk about this? No. I had a conversation with this with with, with uh, one of the, my coworkers this week, and do we really have to keep talking about Facebook Messenger? Mike ranted about this months ago, <laughs> years even. At this point, it's almost a year ago. Yeah, it's true. Well, it was six months. I'm not asking for a debate. It was just a statement. Okay, I think you're crazy. <laughs> I, I think know the benefits I'm of well Facebook aware. Messenger well outweigh. Other apps on your phone are have just as much, if not more, control, and but they're owned by Google instead of Facebook, and you're fine with it. And I trust Google more with my data than I trust Facebook. Well, then, good. Sorry, let's move on. I'm fine on. with that. I like, Moving I like on. Hangouts. So I've got right. this great story from Science Daily. It's <laughs> uh, super interesting. It's just little 
I guess it's like a proof of concept almost, but it's the first public lighting system that runs on solar and wind energy. It's just you've got the the light post that you would normally see in a city, tiny little turbine, tiny little uh, solar panel, just enough to power the thing. What do we think? I think it's a great idea, especially if you're in a where place where like energy transmission costs are high. I don't know what the lifetime of this thing is, but man, I I imagine you could just have it there for a really long time and it would just take care of itself. Seems like a great idea. Uh, I'm looking for where it is. Mike, what are your initial thoughts? I've, I've seen... I, I, I've seen that they have traffic lights now that run on solar. Um, so I guess it's not completely and a completely new concept. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's good. Like, yeah, for, for stuff that's solely used for lighting, you, you see a lot of solar generation being used for those types you know even when it comes to lawn ornaments and that kind of thing they they generally run on solar so you don't have to plug them in or have batteries or that kind of thing so i think it's a natural extension and adaptation of what people are kind of already doing with a lot of different stuff um like i said i've I've seen traffic lights run on on solar before um or speed cameras or any of those types so i think i think Mm -hmm. it's it's a good idea Mm -hmm. for sure yeah it's uh to date eel green has signed agreements with the port of Huelva and the municipal authority of, of Saint Bois de Leo Berg. I am so you sorry to anyone who speaks these French language. Uh, Saint Bois de Leo Girona, <laughs> and several towns in Andalusia. Andalusia? So that's Spain. Ah. I'm sorry, uh, yeah. all Spanish speakers. I am so sorry. I know you're pronouncing those old French. <laughs> They're both romantic languages. I they are. <laughs> it it is very exciting. So yeah, it says they have seven over the course of 2015. 700 of these streetlights are going to be made, and uh, so that's a pretty big scale test. Reduces the uh, cost by twenty percent compared with other conventional means. I imagine and they look gorgeous. Yeah, they they're really pretty looking. Um and they're designed to only operate on 1.7 meters per second of wind. So man, I imagine if you stuck these things in Calgary, probably wouldn't even <laughs> blow need the, the solar circuits. panel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh That's I like that. Yeah, I, I think solar's great for those sort of like autonomous things. Yeah. Europe is great for this green energy stuff well energy is really expensive there isn't it yeah energy and water yeah so i just we'll do uh there's a story here that i just i think i saw yesterday about the nhl teaming up with gopro yeah i saw it this morning did you did nick did you see this i haven't seen it They, they put a very well produced video of nhl stars with GoPros either strapped to their heads, strapped to their sticks, strapped to the pucks. I don't know if it was actually strapped to the puck or just like I don't think strapped, strapped to, the to puck. something. No, but it was for it was for a demo. They were just skating around. Oh, okay. Um, but so for the first time in the All Star game this year, they're going to be mounting cameras. I don't. They didn't go into detail about exactly where or how many, but just around the arena 
around the probably on the ice as well just gopros everywhere like and these are set up to stream live footage so they could actually be used in the broadcast and from what they were showing in this demo video which is about four minutes long it's crazy like if you think about all the angles you'd love to see like um it's always been a dream like when you watch video games just to point of view stuff Mm mm-hmm so if you are watching the game from the point of view of the guy who just scored this beautiful goal in like on a breakaway or something, it's it's so cool. And watching it with the GoPro, they've revamped in the latest update to GoPro, they revamped the cameras to be much more cinematic. So they capture a much wider view. And it looks really, really good. I, I, I'll put a link and I suggest, Nick, if you haven't, or to go check it out and people who haven't seen it. It's a really cool proof of concept. And like even stuff like hits, it, it just it puts you in the perspective. Things like watching a goalie save uh, shots. Yeah. I just think it's a really cool application of technology. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been a huge fan of the ref cam from this year. Because, yeah. I mean, a lot of times from way up where the cameras are, you wonder how on earth could the ref possibly make that call? Like, how? And then it shows you the perspective of the ref and you're like, oh, <laughs> makes a lot more sense but i mean they've changed coaches now on the leafs but i when they were trying to outman the puck in the corners and then they just left people completely alone against the goalie it would have been nice for the coaching staff of the time to have access to that footage where you see people just completely alone scoring on the goalie might be a valuable perspective for even the coaching staff and stuff like that yeah entertaining to be sure they do have coaches or coaching staff up in the press box don't they watching yeah they do the game so in theory like i don't know if there's any communication between them but i'm i'm sure there is but this is a whole different perspective i i think to even as a coaching tool even during practices for instance you could set up cameras just so it'd be very obvious when if someone made a mistake, it'd be very obvious to see from different angles how they could correct it. I'd be I'd be interested to hear the mic'd up portion too. I don't know. Do, do they yeah. have mics on the GoPros or is it just the camera? They mic'd. have mics on the GoPro. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So you'd be able to hear like you'd be able to hear the breathing of the person as they're on that breakaway or like what they're yeah. saying to the player that they're that they're skating up with. Like you know, oh, get open up there. Or like oh, I'll be over yeah, here. Yeah. Whatever. I think they they did that for a ref once, at least once. I don't know if it was NHL or not, but like it was neat because they actually had what the ref was saying, and yeah. there was a call that seemed questionable. But when he skated up to the guy, he said, "No, I warned you that I was going to do this if you did it again, and you did it again. So now you're getting the penalty." <laughs> so, it was, but, but like you actually got the whole series of yeah. him saying, "Like, listen, do it again, and you're getting a penalty," and then it happened again. So he gave him a penalty. It was, yeah, it just made the whole process more transparent. I I think from the perspective of the NHL, who are trying to make this more to try to entertain a larger crowd of, especially Americans that don't necessarily care about hockey as much as football or baseball. It, it, it's a great use. Like I know Mike, you've played a lot of NHL video games. I've played a few, but not nearly as many. Um, Watching, for instance, when you get on a breakaway, that it'll like give you the heartbeat and it'll like narrow the vision, the camera vision down. 
it would be so cool to wa- be watching an NHL broadcast and just see as they get on a breakaway, like it switches to that perspective. And if they had the mic, like it would show Ooh. them hustling and breathing hard. I just think that'd be so cool. Even in replay, but live action. Man. The potential is ridiculous. The Leafs could just like trademark the name Kessel Cam. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. It would be great. <laughs> so we're all on board for this. Just waiting to Absolutely. see when they actually... I'm going to watch the All-Star game and be so excited to see this happen. Whereas before, I probably wouldn't have watched it. Apparently, they're also going to do it during the uh, skills competition, which is... Oh, neat. Yeah. Yeah, I think the goalie perspective would be kind of cool to see. Yeah. Just like a slap shot coming at you. Or watching what a screen looks like. Yeah. Not being able to see the puck and seeing that you can't see the puck. (laughs) Yeah, just like watching James Van Riemsdyk's or David... Reamsdyke or David Clarkson's numbers just like in front of you. Like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh. Yeah. So there's one more story here and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, what's this story about? Something about moons and nuclear waste. Oh, it was oh just yeah. The, yeah. They, uh, they did a story. I don't, I don't know how new the technology is, but the story came out recently on, on a couple scientists that developed a probe to uh, to dispose of nuclear waste. Um, so you'd put the nuclear waste inside this kind of metal container that had a pointy part on it that you just set on the ice. And the natural uh, release of the radiation would heat up this container and just naturally melt it down into the ice. And then once the radiation stopped being hot enough to kind of keep it going deeper it would just freeze wherever it ended up being and then once and this is in ice shelves that they'd that they'd place these mm-hmm. these probes and uh ideally once the the ice shelf kind of went through its natural process of getting to the bottom of the ocean um these probes would have their their main high energy re, uh release of radioactivity finished so that anything left would just be of no concern basically um so, and then they're, they're talking about these probes also being uh, usable when you're exploring, uh, you know, moons and exoplanets where there's these very large ice shelves that might have lakes underneath that you might want to get to. So if you kind of have some sort of system where you can lower these probes down and collect this data, then, then it'd be usable for that as well. So I thought it was an interesting kind of concept for, for disposing of nuclear waste. And I know, Nick, you you have familiarity with that kind of yeah uh, process so i don't know what what your thoughts are on that type of application of it um granted not like an expert in the field one two mm-hmm. uh i would have to look into the minutiae of the plan to really understand it but on first glance it seems like a terrible idea <laughs> <laughs> i mean if you're exploring other planets, like I'm, the storage containers are very, very heavy. Like that is just a, a key feature of them. It would cost a lot. Like the cost per pound to like launch something into space is massive, mm-hmm. and these are. I'm not sure, but I I want to say they must like a an actual storage container that they have now if it was loaded with spent fuel 
I got to assume that's on the order of tons. That's right. going to be a lot of energy to get that into space unless you're using like a rail gun. See, um, these containers are like, I think they like kind of like two liter pop bottle size probes. So you, you have to disperse oh. like hundreds of them all over the ice shelf. How strange. Um, hmm. I don't know. My other concern would be like corrosion because if all of a sudden that became an aqueous environment, that's just depending on what cladding you have, like the cladding could get scratched as it's sinking down. And if it gets to like a steel part of a container, assuming you're using steel, that it's just gone. Like granted, it's going to be at the bottom of the oceans and I don't know how much oxygen is down there, but yeah. I assume on geological timescales, you just assume the container is going to be gone. And if if the spent fuel gets into the uh, into the water, like that's bad news bears. That is lots of heavy metal poisoning for anything that's down there. Yeah. Um, like under the Canadian scheme, they're using I think what they call it is the principle of multiple barriers. So, like, they've designed the 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 storage system such that even if the uranium breaks through the clat the fuel bundle, even if it breaks through the actual storage container, like assuming a storage container just completely fails, they still encase the they have a at least a capstone of um, bentonite clay, which functions as an ion exchanger, uh, whatever whatever the structure is, it will bind preferentially to uranium and release calcium into like an aqueous phase. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have much more faith in that sort of storage system than I would a uh, distributed bottom of the ocean kind of system. <laughs> yeah. These, these containers don't seem to be that robust and, and uh, fail proof. Although it is an interesting idea, a novel approach. I would like to read more about it. Potentially we could do a follow-up on it next week, assuming I yeah. actually read the thing. Um, <laughs> it's always a risk. <laughs> always an if. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. Got to read more. Interesting, interesting idea. What do you guys we'll think? follow up on it next week then. I I like it. I I've always wondered about nuclear waste because it seems like the earth is pretty nuclear. Like there's a lot of nuclear material on earth. So if something at the bottom of the ocean cracks open, how bad is that in the grand scheme of things? Like, yes, if you're in that small area, that pocket of fish is going to die, <laughs> but fish die all the time. I'm not saying it's like, I'm not saying don't protect the environment. The, if within 20 minutes of that happening or a couple hours of that happening, the water spreads that nuclear material around so much that it's less than the background you're going to get anyways, then what? From a political like standpoint, saying, oh, it's it. only that pocket of fish that are going to die, I don't no, think but that... it seems worth it in terms of the abundance of information we're going to get from having a probe on the bottom of the ocean. Rob, are you saying that dilution is the solution to pollution? Yes, not the solution, but in this particular case, it's fine. There are a lot of cases where you can't just dilute pollution. 
But in this case, I think if it's something at the bottom of the ocean in a in an Arctic ocean, no no less, it's a good way to do this. How oh, else are you going to research that? Other fun note, um, like the the maximum projected temperature of a fuel container under like Canadian conditions, the maximum temperature is projected to be about 150 degrees Celsius. Man, that would melt through the ice real nicely. Yep, really nicely. <laughs> I, I, they, they gave a they gave a rate of penetration, and it was like meters a day. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It gets pretty hot. Little <laughs> gravity. <laughs> Although another sorry, another note on that would be that um, water is excellent for radiation shielding. It's just very small amounts of radioactive material contaminate incredibly large volumes of water. Yeah. Like that's why they, uh, they actually store nuclear waste in water in the nuclear plants, but they have filters going constantly on those storage tanks. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us this week for Future Chat, as always. We'll be back next week with more science and tech talk. In the meantime, you can drop us a message on Twitter. Uh, at, we're at Future Chats, or you can find past episodes and more at futurechat.me on the web. See you guys next time. See you guys. Bye. That was as abrupt as it was appreciated and on time. <laughs>